In this episode, Tess Lewis spoke about translating microfiction, her marathon project notes, Siegel Books publication, and about some really useful books on the art of translation. You can find the recommended list of books compiled by her in the show notes. Tess Lewis is a writer and translator from French and German. Her translations include works by Peter Handke, Hans Magnus Engensberger, Jonas Lucher, Lord Sailor, Walter Benjamin and Montaigne. Her translation of Maza Hadderlap's Angel of Oblivion won the ACFNY Translation Prize and the 2017 Pen Translation Award. Her essays and reviews have appeared in a number of journals and newspapers including the The New York Criterion, The Hudson Review, World Literature Day, The Wall Street Journal, The American Scholar and Book Forum. A Guggenheim and Berlin Prize Fellow and a 2024 American Library in Paris Scholar of Note, she serves as an advisory editor for the Hudson Review and a co-curator of the Festival Noir Literature, New York City's annual festival of German language literature in English. Welcome to our podcast, Tess. Thank you for coming over. Thank you. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here, and I'm always happy to talk about translation. Tell us about your schooling days. Any special interest in reading and languages? I was a very avid reader growing up. I always read whatever I could get my hands on in the local library or bookstores. I my education, my primary and secondary education was divided between the United States and France. My parents were both French professors and would often take the whole family to the city of Angers, which is the last chateau on the Loire, for two years at a time. And when they did, I would go to French schools. So I went to, I would say, first and second grade in the United States, and then junior high school, which corresponds to the ages of seven and eight, and then again, 13 and 14. So I got my grounding in French very early. When I went back as a 13-year-old, most of my classmates had already started a second language, and the, the French school obviously wouldn't let me take English. So I had to basically teach myself German. It was the other option that was offered, and catch up. So I had to cram my German into the first two years into one and try and, and catch up with my classmates. So my foundation, my grammatical foundation in German is not really as firm as perhaps it could ideally be, but I've spent enough time in German-speaking countries that I feel comfortable there. Also, I did in university, I did my, my year abroad in Innsbruck in Austria. So that helped with the catching up I had to do. Tell us about the book which got you interested in literature. As I said, I read everything, um, but I was not at all, everything that I could get my hands on, but I was not particularly discerning or choosy. And once, when I was a young teenager, one of my parents' friends said, oh, you absolutely must read this. It was his current, it was his current passion. So he gave me a copy of Bulgakov's The Master and Margarita which was definitely above my head for many of the overtones with Soviet Russia and Stalinism and all the rest. But it was it, the way that Bulgakov moves through diff distant worlds and different time periods with the retelling of 
the encounter between Pontius Pilate and Jesus really opened my eyes to what it meant to write politically engaged literature and not in the way of overt things. Malraux's Man's Fate, I knew that because I had to read it in school, but to write a political novel that was so deeply engaged with the fantastic was eye-opening to me. And that um, expanded my horizons as a reader. And I'm forever grateful both to Bulgakov and to that friend. Then uh, the book which got you interested in translation. Um, so I had, even though I was very aware of the transition that's necessary between languages to read works, the major works of literature, I hadn't really thought about translation or who was doing the translation. Obviously, I had access to French and German books. And if there was a book that I couldn't read in English translation, I would seek out translations in one or two languages, for example, of Bruno Schulz's Cinnamon Shops, the Polish writer who died in the 40s in Drohobisch. But it didn't really, the idea of translation as an art more than just a sort of a craft or a service didn't occur to me until I read George Steiner's After Babel, which is a very extensive, profound, and thorough study of translation through the ages from the Latin culture, adopting many of the Greek works and not just making them, translating them into Latin, but making their own adapt adaptive versions of them to up to Paul Salon and more recent translation quandaries. Paul Salon was a Romanian Jew whose primary literary language was German, and he lost most of his family members to the Holocaust. Many of your listeners will no doubt be familiar with his work. And his poetry is supremely difficult. It managed to, in a sense, rehabilitate the German language from the influence of the Nazis and their usurpation of German. But the reason he's also interesting as a, a figure for translators is that he did many translations of Mandelstam, of Shakespeare, that are very free. They are, some of them are almost rewritings rather than translation. So having, in a sense, this detailed geographical map of translation from over the millennia to me was eye-opening. And that is really when I thought this is, translation is a supreme art form. And people may often do and may well make the claim that it's derivative because it's working with existing material. You wouldn't call a theater director's work derivative. It's a new interpretation. And so I hope I'm not going on too long, but... No, but no, 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 no. Okay. One of my pet peeves too. Please go ahead. Because uh, see, even a photograph is derivative, right? Yes, exactly. And I'll come back to photography in a minute. But one of, I think, an essential point that George Steiner makes in After Babel is not just that every act of, of translation is an act of interpretation, but every reading is an act of interpretation. Native English speakers who read Shakespeare won't read the Shakespeare that I do, or they won't read the next, the same Joyce Carol Oates that I do. And this to me is a profound justification for the existence and the validity of multiple translations. If I can read two translations of a work 
to which I have no access to the original, that means that I have two insights into it rather than just one. Uh, the German has uh, spoken in Germany, and the Swiss German, right? Uh, what are the what is the variation in these two? I have a particular fondness for Swiss literature that is written in German and Austrian literature that is written in German, because German literature is such a behemoth, and the works by Austrian writers and Swiss writers are on the periphery, not just geographically, sometimes literarily. And so uh, what makes them interesting to me, and to answer your question more directly, is their variations on German and the use of German. So I would say one way to think about the differences between German as its high German, as because Swiss German Schwitzerdeutsch is a different language. It's incomprehensible to many German speakers. Or the dialects you find even in Germany, but especially in Austria and Switzerland. You can think about the variations between German as it's spoken in Austrian and German as it's spoken in Switzerland as the differences between British English, American English, and Indian English. And there's all sorts of assumptions about which is the real English and who uses it properly. And one of my pet peeves, actually, is the way that many English language publishers do not take Indian, English as it's spoken in India, seriously as a literary means of expression. And I occasionally do master classes at the Seagull Books School of Publishing. And I know you wanted to speak about them. And one point I always make to the students who are primarily from India, but not exclusively, is that they should be fearless, if not militant, in translating into the English that they speak. Because it will bring something to readers in America and Britain. You know, tell us about your experience of your first published translation, how it has come about. I know some of your guests, translator guests, have related similar experiences of almost stumbling into translation. I was working after graduate school. I got a master's in English literature in, in Oxford University, and I... I was working in publishing, which is what I always wanted to do. I always wanted to be an editor from as long as I can remember thinking about what I wanted to do. I was working in a small publishing house called Prisia Books. They focus primarily on poetry. They do a fair amount of translations. In fact, they did some of the first Paul Salon translations into English by Michael Hamburger. And I was, I would translate interviews or reviews or anything that they needed from French and German. But we shared the office with George Braziller books. And George Braziller, unfortunately now dead, was a pioneering publisher. His list was exquisite, both of art books, but also French writers, particularly the Nouveau Roman, the new novel writers. And one day he said, I was at my desk, and he said, here's a, a book by Peter Handke that we're considering publishing called Once Again from Thucydides. And it's a very, it's a slender book, but it's a beautiful and beautifully written book and about a different approach to history. So it's an alternative to the Greek historian Thucydides. And 
Hantke goes around Austria and some of the Balkan regions and countries and finds illumination in small events, whether it's a crocus poking up through the snow or a cobbler mending shoes in Croatia and split. And, and so it was a real, it was a delight and a privilege to start translating my first book with not just such a preeminent author, but a quite lovely book. Uh, it's one of I, my favorite books of his as well. And this was written before his problematic stance in Serbian politics. So it was still able to approach, I was still able to approach Huntke naively, I would say, and simply enjoy the beauty of the writing, which I still enjoy the beauty of his writing, but you do have to keep um, some of his more, I feel that it's important to keep his more unfortunate political pronouncements recently, which have been on occasion unfairly characterized. It's important to keep them in mind. To get back to my story, always shaggy dog with me, I'm afraid. George Brazilla then decided that it wasn't feasible for him to publish this book. It's because it's quite short. And even I suggested illustrating the different epiphanies with woodcuts, but he decided against it. And for, but fortunately, a, an agent, Jennifer Lyons, who represented a number of German language publishers at the time, got wind of it. And she found a home for this book at New Directions Press. So even though it had languished in my drawer for four or five years, it then came out, I think, in 1999 with New Directions. And, and they were kind enough to, to believe in the book on its own, slender as it was. So that was my introduction by chance into translating. Uh, although I have to say, I kept working as an editor and a freelancer and a book critic for, I was a book critic primarily for a good decade until devoting myself full-time to translation in 2009. Then the book caught on, and then, of course, Handke was got the Nobel Prize, and which was nice. Then the book got a second wind. Not a second life, but a second wind recently. About your project notes, which, in, which is very special, I felt. Yes. This is a monster of a book. Ludwig Hohl is a Swiss writer. He was born in 1904 and he died in 1980. And he wrote quite a few books, memoirs, essays, studies, a few short stories, or novellas, I should call them. But what he considered his magnus opus were the volume called Notes or On Non-Premature Reconciliation. And what this is, it's a, it's a book, over a thousand notes that are mini essays, aphorisms, philosophical reflections, potted biographies of some of the important writers, parables, fables, anecdotes. Um, and he wrote these many thousands of them in Holland, where he was living in 34 to 36 in what he calls a state of extreme spiritual desolation. And then he kept these notes with him, written on various scraps of paper, because he was quite poor living in, in the Netherlands. And he, for decades, he had them strung up, he strung up clotheslines in his basement study, and hung them on the clothesline and would reorder them and rework them, expand them. 
He has several other volumes similar of notes, but the ones that he selected for the notes, his volume, Dinotitsen, were ones that he had really fine-tuned and perfected and gotten in precisely the order he wanted. So I was told about this book by a friend, translator from German into Czech, and he had been commissioned to do a section of the notes. And I started reading them and I thought, this really is something quite unique and and illuminating and eye-opening. He should be in English. And then as I looked around, I saw that George Steiner had also in After Babel, even though it didn't register at the time that I had read it, George Steiner has a, a, a short paragraph about how masterful uh, Ludwig Hull was a writer at, was as a writer and thinker, and why it was necessary for him to be translated into English. Unfortunately, the notes my translation did not come out um, until after George Steiner had passed away. But it was I, I like to think of it coming full circle with my inspiration from After Babel um, as a twenty-something-year-old. Now, how many pages was it when it ended up uh, getting? To- Ah, uh, the German, it was, I think, about a 1,400, but I had to abridge them. So I abridged them down to the English edition is 350, but it's a smaller font and it's much more tightly, the layout is much tighter. So I would say I cut it by maybe a quarter, which Ludwig Hall would not have approved. I would not have been able to do this while he was alive. He felt very strongly. And in fact, he felt very strongly that it should be read as it was. And if it wasn't, if the reader wasn't up to it, he should put it aside and come back to it later. Um, but I, I felt that having, um, getting him into the hands of English language readers in an abbreviated form was better than not getting him. And the publisher wasn't going to do the whole volume. So I tried to be as careful and as selective as possible. He was a man of his time. And so there are quite a number of notes that are um, misogynist, that are offensive about women. They're offensive about the Dutch. He really could not forgive the Dutch, his experience in the 30s. And I'm sure the Dutch didn't mean to be unwelcoming, but he was a very prickly character. He also dislikes dogs. He's terrible about dogs. So anyway, I I did shorten the notes. Now, what struck me when I read about that particular work of yours, translation, is that normally if you take a novel or a short story compilation, more or less uh, it's fiction, right? There are certain themes which are running through. But uh, this, this particular project of yours where there are essays about different topics, you know, various things all jumbled up together. I was wondering how many days it would have taken for you to translate it. And even abridging it also is a very difficult task because you have to read it so thoroughly that you have to really decide which to keep and which not to keep. That again is a challenge, right? Yes. In in my translator's note to the book, I described my experience of reading the notes as entering a geodesic dome. Because the order, he structured it, he divided into um, 12 or 13 sections, the, thematically, but then within them, 
there's a chronological consideration in, in 12 issues, in 12 sections. And for example, they are on work, on the accessible and the inaccessible, talking, chattering, keeping silent, the reader, art, on writing, and so forth. So he really has, he has a thematic structure. He has themes and variations. He also echoes, and he has a whole footnote system where he will remind the reader, well, he'll alert the reader in section one that this theme is treated in the following notes in section three, five, ten, and whatever. And then also in the later sections, hearkening back to treatments of the same theme in earlier sections. I did have to, I had to translate the whole thing and then cut them and think about whether each section was, and theme, and style of writing was adequately represented. That doesn't mean that I translated. If there was a, if there was a note that I knew wasn't, was very unlikely to make the cut, I didn't translate it. For example, he has extended passages on Swiss writers from the 18 and 1900s who are completely forgotten today. And I didn't think that it served the English collection well to distract the reader with those if they couldn't relate to it. So it took me quite a few years to do it because I was, you know, also doing a job to earn money on the side and trying to get as much biographical information about him as I could. It was because that played into how I understood and interpreted the fragments. I was very fortunate to get a Guggenheim fellowship for this project. And that allowed me to go to Geneva, where Hull lived for the last decade of his life. And I met several people who had known Ludwig Hull, both either as students or later as friends. And so that was extremely helpful. Tell us about some of the important authors you have translated other than these and why you chose those specific works to translate. So some of the books I really feel felt were necessary to get into English and I think play an important role in their own countries and could in ours, if English language read them, are Epic Annette by Anne Weber. And that is a novel in verse based on the life of a woman who, uh, a French woman who fought in the resistance, joined the resistance as a 19-year-old, and then later assisted the Algerian liberation movement and had to live in exile in Algeria for a while. So not only is it important because of the way Anne Weber writes about this woman and her life, the literary sophistication with which the book is written, but also an alternative, it's an alternate way of writing history. And the reason she calls it Epic Annette and wrote it in verse is because she wanted to employ the epic form to rehabilitate, re rejuvenate the epic form with a story about a woman who is quote unquote normal or average, who, but who did heroic things. So there's that. That came out last year with Indigo Books in, in England. Another book I translated, I was asked by the publisher to do this book, although I knew it and I wanted to do it. The second book that I think is extremely important is by the Austrian writer, poet, and novelist Maya Haderla called Angel of Oblivion, which is a novel based on her family's experiences before and during and after World War II. She was born in the Slovenian-speaking ethnic minority in southern 
Austria, in Corinthia. And she tells the story of her family, many of whom fought with the partisans against the Nazis, some of whom died, and some of whom were branded terrorists by the Austrian state and also by the Tito's partisans. And up until she takes it up until the 90s when Jörg Haider was elected, a far-right governor of Corinthia, which continued the friction between the ethnic Slovenians and the Austrians. And this novel literally changed the way Austrians talk about their own history. This was a chapter that they had chosen to look away from in most part. It wasn't taught in schools. Um, and then finally, and so I think it's important for English language readers in England, in the United States, and in, in India to read because it shows it's a serious exploration and questioning of how do dominant cultures live with and tolerate others, minority communities, who have often been there longer than the dominant culture. And finally, I would like to point to two novels by Lutz Zeiler, who just won the Buchner Prize, which is the most important literary award in German for German language literature. And he wrote two novels, Kluso and Star 111. Kluso is set, they're highly autobiographically inflected. So they're not autobiographical, strictly speaking, but he does mine his own experiences extensively. Kluso is set on the island of Hinze in the Baltic just before the fall of the wall. And that's a place that's only 25 kilometers from the Danish coast. And many East Germans died trying to escape over that stretch of water. And this is his experience of a community there right before the fall of the wall. And Star 111, which tells the story of an aspiring poet whose parents leave for the West. As soon as the the wall falls, they leave for the West because to America. They had always had the dream and had never been able to fulfill it of going to the West. And this is a period in Germany that has also been ignored. Um, what was lost in reunification? There were many things about East German culture and society that were very valuable, but were dismissed by the by the West Germans, who felt that they were investing so much into Eastern Germany, they felt entitled to decide priorities. And that's you see the simmering resentment in the rise of the far-right parties in the former East. What Lutz Seiler does in both of these books is capture the mood, the aspirations, the idealism of an entire country that no longer exists. And, and it's a, I think it's a beautiful testament to, another beautiful testament to thinking differently and to what extent can that and should that be tolerated by a the dominant culture or political system so what kind of preparation do you do before you start translating a book when i it depends on how much time i have when i have enough time i will ideally i would read the whole book but sometimes i only have an opportunity to read maybe a third or a half to get a sense of whether I, I want to do it or not. But what I like to do is then get information, as much information as I can about the author's other books, if it's not his or her first book, 
And I also like to, especially after I've read a number of chapters, think about similar voices or the kind of voice that I, the kind of English voice I imagine for the author. And then I will read, I'll try to find books in English novels or poetry or whatever that that either echo or remind or me of solidify the voice in my ear or treat similar subjects. For example, there was a, a novel, a lovely novel that I translated two or three years ago called What You Can See From Here by Mariana Lakey. And it's it has a lovely lightness of touch and an irony. And so books that I read for that were, for example, Anne Patchett and Jane Austen and who else did I, I read for that? Alice Monroe. So books that had a serenity, a, a sort of serenity on the surface, but with a lot of things going on underneath. Or in the case of Jane Austen, a, a very lightly wry sense of humor about uh, societal expectations. So I like to, and it's also an excuse for going around and reading a lot of books that I otherwise wouldn't necessarily have a chance to revisit or explore. Can you please suggest some important books for budding translators to read? So get out your pens. I have a very long list. I have several shelves of books about translation or by translators on, on in my office. I think that a marvelous introductory book that that is it's about translation, but also about the business of translation, is uh, a book by David Bellos called "Is That a Fish in Your Ear?" And he goes through each chapter as a different question, either about the dynamics and strategies of translation or the business. How is it that how are they marketed? How do you market a translation? How does the publishing industry work? I would suggest After Babel by George Steiner, but this is really for people who, who you have to like to get into the translation weeds, but you can dip in and out. Sympathy for the Trader, a translator's manifesto by Mark Palazzati, like David Bellos's book, is a nice introductory level, but still substantial book about the Act of Translating and Translation's Place in the World. The poet Eliot Weinberger has written a book called 19 Ways of Looking at Wang Wei, where he takes this Chinese poem and looks at 19 different translations of it. And it does, by comparing these different translations, teases out what different approaches to translation and what works in what ways and what doesn't work. And he doesn't say, this is the right translation, these are wrong. Again, it's, as I mentioned earlier in our conversation, there is a richness to having multiple translations of any work. Edie Grossman's Why Translation Matters is a slim book. And it, there are a recent rise of, or a spate of translation memoirs. I think the two best are Catching Fire, a translation Diary by Daniel Hahn, who you had on your podcast. And it's a very funny 
Yes, he goes chapter by chapter through and catches the experience of translating. And because Danny is very funny, it is a, a very enjoyable, whether you're interested in translation or not, or at whatever level, this is a lovely book. Another book, translation memoir, is This Little Art by Kate Briggs, who is a, an English writer. She translated some lectures by Roland Barthes and uses that experience of translation and ties it to experiences in her own life and basically makes a case for considering translation as really a, a physical somatic act as well as an intellectual one. And my other recommendations would be to seek out translation, translators' notes and or introductions to some, by some of the most prominent translators working today, in particular, Emily Wilson's introduction to the Odyssey is fascinating. Maria Devana Headley's introduction to her new version of Beowulf is great, as is Seamus Heaney's. Emma Ramadan wrote two very interesting introductions, one for the novel Sphinx by Anne Garita, in which there's no pronouns, so you don't know if the protagonist is male or female. And that's extremely hard to do. And Or the other and rather amusing introduction she wrote was to a novel by Brice Mathieu-Saint called Revenge of the Translator, at where she, yeah, she inserts herself into the translation intentionally, because that is the point of the book. I wrote yeah. her uh, asking uh, for a time about this particular book, actually, Revenge of the Translator. She said in uh, the month of January, we good. will... Good. Oh, good. I will be sure to listen. I, I, it will be fascinating. Yeah. She's done many books that are that really push the boundaries, not just of fiction, but then, of course, necessarily of translation. So Lydia Davis uh, set up yes. articles on translation. So yes, that's a good that's a good one. And also th- something that is, I think, important and helpful to do is seek out some of the blogs that are primarily or completely devoted to translations. Words Without Borders has quite a few essays on translation by translators. Also, they have what they call their translator relay, which is fun if you are interested in not just translation but in translators themselves. Asymptote has a has interesting pieces on translation, and, and there are others, but the, those are already, if any of your listeners are, are going to follow these suggestions, they'll be busy for years. <laughs> yes, they'll be busy for years. You're right. So, um, what are you currently working on? At the moment, I am just starting a novella by the Austrian writer Ingeborg Bachmann called The Hundertkreuz. And Ingeborg Bachmann is a towering figure of Austrian literature and German literature in general. But she was, she was born in 26 and died in 70 and transformed. She was as influential in a way and is similarly influential to Paul Salon with, with whom she had a very close intellectual and also emotional relationship. And has written novels. She had a, she has many poetry, many books of poetry, which are very important, but also her prose is quite revolutionary in the way it looks at the perpetuation 
of violence against women in societies, specifically Nazi Germany, but also the patriarchal systems in German-speaking countries. This novel, The Hundertkreuz, was one that she wrote at 19. And, and so it's not, it's not at quite the level of richness and sophistication as her later books, of course, but it's fascinating to see how all the themes that she later develops with such precision and inventiveness are there in this novel in, in initial form to be are hinted at or the seeds are there and they sprout in her later work. Also, it's interesting in that it she touches on the tensions between the Slovenian-speaking community in because it happens in Carinthia, where she's where she was born. So the Slovenian-speaking community and tensions with the dominant German-speaking community and how that played out. So I'm very much looking forward to that. Uh, when is the when is this book uh, coming out likely? So it would. I will finish it in a few months, and then it will. So it will come out um, early 2025. You curated uh, the only German language literary festival in the United States. Tell us about the experience. So this is Festival Neue Literatur, and it is the. It is, as far as I know, the only literary festival devoted exclusively to German language literature in the United States. And the format is to bring two, two writers from each German-speaking country, from Germany, Austria, and Switzerland. And we pair them with two American writers. And it, it happens in English. It's primarily in English. So if the writers have not yet had an English translation, we then will translate an excerpt of the book. And so we have conversations between these writers themselves, between these writers and American authors. Sometimes it's a panel devoted to a particular theme, like history and literature or the fantastic. Sometimes it's just straightforward reading where we're talking about the body of work by an author or a selection of short readings by, oh, sorry, all six writers together. And it's been such a joy to do, to discover new, to curate, to discover new writers, to get to know their work in depth through these conversations. Unfortunately, since COVID, it has been uh, suspended. We've done a couple events online, satellite events, but we probably won't have another in-person festival for another year or two. Are there any organizations specifically working for Swiss-German literature into English? There are two that I'm aware of, and the primary one is Prohelvetia, which is the, cult the government cultural funding source in Switzerland. But they are very good about offering subsidies to publishing houses, uh, to publish translations of Swiss authors uh, of any of the national languages. So that's Swiss, German, sorry, the Sorry, the four national languages are German, French, Italian, and Romanche. So they will provide subsidies for the presses who to, to publish translations in English of these works, but they also fund their writers, bring them, send them to residencies in New York or elsewhere in the United States. 
They send them to California as well. They have a couple opportunities for artists as well as writers. So that's very helpful. Another organization is called Swiss Necks in Boston and California. And while that is primarily geared towards fostering relationships between the American and the Swiss business communities, they see as part of their mission to also introduce American readers to Swiss writers. So it's, but it's, it's difficult. There's not enough. I wish there were more interest in Swiss literature. For some reason, it doesn't, Swiss writers haven't gotten the attention I think that they deserve, and hopefully that will be remedied. Translations will help quite a lot in that direction. <laughs> yes, yes, they're the most important start indeed. Now, uh, this uh, book uh, that we have taken up uh, for the discussion, your recent one, is questionable one. So it is uh, published by Seagull Books. Exactly, so, exactly. Tell us about your working relation with uh, Seagull. Seagull Books is a publisher in Calcutta. They are now, I believe, 30 years old, and they are fearless. Naveen Kishore, a film lighting director, a photographer, a poet, and a publisher, I don't know how he does it all, is very committed to bringing into English the kinds of books that he found so essential to his own intellectual life when he was growing up, which means a wide array of international literature, specifically French, German, Swiss, Italian. And so he he publishes selectively and consciously. He has his own definite taste and interests, but he is not swayed by the fact that a book might have a very small audience ever, or it might take a very long time for the book to reach its particular audience. And so he will take risks on books and authors who are not really, who wouldn't necessarily appear financially feasible to, to publishers. But he has quite a few, quite a few Nobel Prize winners on his list, Peter Handke and Hertha Miller. So he's, so it's, I think Seagull Books is an absolutely essential addition to the worldwide literary landscape. Yeah, I think uh, four or five of the translators that we spoke to recently, they all got uh, published from Seagull Books. About the book, Questionable Ones, it is uh, microfiction. So tell us about microfiction as a literary device. There's some vagueness in the label and there's overlap between microfiction, flash fiction, short fiction. But essentially, I chose to call these books microfictions because often some of them are only a sentence long. Some are a couple pages, but some are simply a sentence. And I feel that if one sentence can open up a whole fictional world, then that is fiction operating on the smallest level and with the shortest unit. And so I choose to call them microfictions. And what the author, Judith Keller, she's Swiss, writes in German, she's in her 30s. What she does in these, in these, small short fictions is to 
look at language very closely. And so she will take an idiomatic expression we use without thinking or, or a term like potential to someone is not reaching their potential. And she, she leans into it and sees what happens if we take these idiomatic expressions strictly seriously at face value? Or what if we push logic, perfectly good logic, to an extreme? And so they're quite humorous. Sometimes they're poignant. Sometimes they're humorous. She explores layers of time. How do we experience time? And what does it mean to be, it's high time that something happened? What does that mean? And so she has a whole series of stories called High Time where a far-fetched woman goes and has been waiting for high time. The structure of the book is organized around seven tram stops in Zurich. And so you get a sense of, even though it's not really geographically specific, you do get a sense of operating through a metaf- uh, traveling through a metaphysical Zurich, uh, both within the characters and outside the characters. There's a common thread, at least, to look for. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I was wondering about the experience of translating it because uh, it's only a couple of sentences or three, four sentences, uh, which in itself is self-contained. Because any error that you make, <laughs> it will, it can take you into a totally different direction. Yes, exactly. And I was lucky because Judith Keller's for English is good enough for her for me to ask her questions, and so we we had some very fun and interesting discussions about about the stories and how they operate and what specific meanings happened. And during one of our conversations, she said, I see each sentence as a character. So the sentence is there on stage saying, look at me, I'm here. And it may interact with other sentences, it may not. There's There were several of these microfictions that I simply could not translate. And so I went back and forth with her. One of them was built around the word ausgerechnet, which can mean calculated. It can mean of all things. It can mean particularly. It has all these different shades of meaning. And she wove it into this story where every sentence had the word ausgerechnet in it, in its various meanings, which of course echoed the other ones. And I said to her, look, I can't do this. I could do it with just one of the meanings. And she said, oh, don't worry, just cut it. I'll write you another. So there's two or three of the microfictions in the questionable ones that are not in Die Fragwürdigen, the German edition, and vice versa. So it was, on the one hand, it was a joy. On the other hand, it was a nightmare. Please read the... I don't know whether I have to say one of these stories in Swiss German and in English from the book. Yes, I'll I'll read one that that shows how she questions how she questions terms that we use. And this one is called Vorfreude, which means anticipation. Vorfreude. Muriel gehört zu den Frauen, an die man lieber zurückdenkt als sich direkt zu ihrer Zeit ganz mit ihnen abzufinden. So ist man ihr dankbar für die Erinnerungen, die sich später aus ihr machen lassen und verlässt sie mit einem gewissen Gefühl der Vorfreude. So in English, that is 
Anticipation. Muriel is one of those women others prefer to think back on than deal with directly in real time. Thus, everyone is grateful for the memories they will have of her, and so leave her with a certain sense of anticipation. So the anticipation here takes on really darker overtones than it might otherwise, than you would have normally. Could I read just one more in English? And this one, um, because this one shows how she will take an abstract term and make them concrete, and by doing that, make us think of whatever that abstraction is differently. Potential. People say that Josephine remains far below her potential. Even she notices how she tilts back her head. There it is, my potential, she thinks, looking up at the scaffolding that extends metallically in all directions. Far below, Josephine can hear the wind shake it. She calls out, come down, potential. I'd like to stay with you a while. I'm with you. I'm part of you. I just, I love these stories because they are, they're poignant, they're rich, and they leave you thinking about whatever the nexus is that Judith is exploring. This is the first time uh, I was reading microfiction. So I thought uh, it would be really great to have uh, for a book discussion in a book reading club. Exactly. <laughs> yes. It will really enrich the conversation. You know, it will, it will take different shapes. It, will, it can go in any direction. Uh, depending yes. on how you interpret. Then I thought back, as a reader, I was responding to that. Then I was wondering about the plight of the translator. <laughs> yes, it was It was challenging, but it was great fun. Actually, one of the next books I'll do after the Ingeborg Bachmann is Judith's novel called Wild Maneuvers. And it has the same atmosphere, but it doesn't have the, it's not as, it doesn't have the density of the microfictions, but it has the same sort of uh, wacky, surreal sense of humor. So I'm looking forward to that. Thank you. Thank you. Such a fascinating conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you for your interest and for reading with such pleasure, The Questionable Ones.